Mark chapter 3 is where we are this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible or you don't have some sort of appy thing, then um, put your hand up nice and high and the guys in the back will bring a Bible to you. Lord, we do lift up Dee and, and, and her family to you, especially Bill on this Father's Day. And um, Father, we just pray that, that uh, you would be at work uh, in her body, uh, in her spirit, Lord, as she's uh, constrained to the hospital bed uh, with her thoughts and with her mind. And Lord, we pray for her, that the bleeding in her brain to stop. We pray for the, the healing work, Lord, you've designed us to heal. You've made our bodies to, to heal. And we pray that her body, that nothing would inhibit that process from happening. We pray for her body to be resting and her spirit to be uh, being ministered to by you in the, in the deep places, Lord, the quiet places, um, the places we often ignore when life is busy. So, Lord, we uh, just pray you bring her back among us. And, Lord, pray for all the fathers that are here today, uh, and especially for the fathers that aren't. Lord, we know the struggle of a family who's, who's not being led by a spiritual man. And so, Lord, we pray for men everywhere that they would be convinced that the head of every man is Christ. And they would be convicted that there, that, that there is no fatherly understanding outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray for men. We pray for the men of Fluvanna. We pray for the men... Uh, of, of America and the men around the world that Lord once again you would be the Lord of, of our hearts of my heart the Lord of men's hearts and men would be made into your image Father we pray that you open our eyes during this study time teach us more about yourself it's in Jesus name and all God's people said amen. amen Amen interesting how it goes like that Amen we're coming through uh, and into the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark. We have been seeing a building of conflict between Jesus and the religious men of his day. Uh, continual accusations uh, toward Jesus of doing things that he shouldn't do, breaking the law. And we recognize that Jesus never broke God's law. The issue at stake here is not the law of God, not what God said about the Sabbath, but how religious people, religious people in his day, the Pharisees, um, to, to name one group, had added and explained and interpreted what God really meant to say. And that had just heaped burdens upon burdens, chapters upon chapters of their uh, explanation and interpretation of what God meant when he said not to work. So God said, hey, the Sabbath day, don't work, uh, don't, do your, don't engage in your regular Nine to fiver. But they said, well, what does it mean to work? And then, well, well working means maybe carrying a burden is a work. Well, what's a burden? So there's just, talk about a legal document. You know, just line upon line upon line of explanation about what these things meant. Well, a, a burden is anything that's uh, heavier than a fig. Or, or, you know, can you wear your false teeth? Is putting in false teeth, does that count as, as bearing a burden on the Sabbath day? All these things they tried to explain. So it's those things Jesus was more than happy to confront, and he did so. And this comes to sort of, a, this is the fifth conflict that arises in, in the Gospel of Mark between Jesus and the Pharisees, and this is sort of the, this brings it to a heightening, almost to a pinnacle. Uh, we're going to see Jesus angry, 
And that's going to make some of you confused because we don't ever picture Jesus as getting angry. But in this passage, he's angry. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 1, tells the story of a man uh, with a withered hand. So let's read it. We'll read down from uh, verse 1 on through verse 6. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So Jesus is back in the synagogue again. I think one of the Gospels says and he entered their synagogue because certainly um, in some ways Jesus was no longer welcome in the synagogues. He just continued to cause trouble there. But um, another gospel tells us he was there and he was teaching. And we don't know what he was teaching on in the synagogue that day. They didn't have pastors that were the regular teachers in the synagogues. They, oftentimes a visiting rabbi might be asked to, to expound on the word of God. And so Jesus was there teaching. And, uh, and, and this, this man is there. A man was there who had a withered hand. Um, we don't, again, like so many of the people we meet as we read these, uh, these accounts in the Bible, we don't know his name we don't know his, his family situation. We know it's Saturday, and he's in, the, he's in the, uh, the synagogue worshiping the Lord. And he's got this withered hand. Now, what we do know is Luke tells us specifically it's his right hand, which for most people is the dominant hand. We also know that uh, this, based on the Greek translation of it, you, can't, you don't get it in the English, but based on the Greek, this is not something he was born with. We don't know how his hand became withered. To, the, withered, the word withered means to be dried up. It's often used of a plant or a tree that's without water. It's dried, dried up, it's shriveled up. So this man has evidently had some type of injury. Extra biblical sources suggest that maybe he was a stonemason. Now I can't say that for sure. We don't know that from the Gospels. But uh, possibly it was a work-related accident. Possibly a nerve injury. Back in 1989, I had an accident, a construction-related accident. Uh, I severed the nerve in my right arm. So in some ways, I have a withered hand. Uh, many of you don't know that, but the, all the uh, muscles in my right hand uh, are all atrophied, and you can see that when you look closely, but I can't open and close the fingers in my right hand. They don't know. They just, it's, well, so when I go, it's kind of funny because I go to the grocery store, and I put out my hand for change, and it just falls right through my fingers. Because like, oh. I, can't, I can't close those fingers or open them because cutting the nerve caused all the, all the muscles that, that make your fingers open and close to atrophy. So he may have had a, a nerve injury of some sort. He may have had some other type of work-related accident that has caused his hand to be withered. Um, but likely, you know, very conscious of this, very subconscious of this uh, as he's in and around people. Uh, I wish I knew more. He's, is he a father? You know, here we are on Father's Day. And uh, has it affected his ability to work, to earn a living? And there's nothing more that gets to the heart uh, of a man than than his ability or inability to provide for his family. So we don't, we don't, I'm, so I'm sort of 
speculating in a way, but producing a picture in your mind that may or may not be so. But either way, he has no idea, he had no idea the day of his accident, the day of his injury, the day of his illness, whatever caused this to happen. He had no idea how God was going to use that. And this man who is trying to hide himself in church is going to become the center of attention in a conflict between Jesus and the religious men of his day. So he's got this withered hand. Um, And look at the the Pharisees are there. Verse 2 says they're watching him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So they sort of have come to expect certain things from Jesus, right? They knew his tendency. That guy, the nerve of him, he tends to heal people on the Sabbath. So we got to watch out for him. And so they're scrutinizing him. They're watching him closely so they can learn from him, so they can admire him. No, so they can accuse him. Don't you know that feeling? I know that feeling as a pastor. I mean, some of you have brought friends to Calvary Chapel. And you've been hopeful that maybe, maybe they would hear from the Lord here. And maybe, you know, their lives would be changed. And maybe they would have, have this uh, revelation here. But you went, you know, you left the service and all they had was criticism. All they had was, that, well, you know, this or that. And, and people will find, if you're looking for something to accuse, you will find it, right? If you're, you will find what you're looking for. If you're looking to, to criticize, if you're looking to accuse, if you're looking to, to undo or to, you know, to, to cause harm, you, you will find things that, that, that do that. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were intent on, on catching Jesus doing something they could accuse him of. And there's that pressure, not just church-wise, but where you work. You may be the only representative of Jesus Christ in the place you work. And you know that there are people watching your life. And it's like your life is under a microscope. When I was in college, we had the, uh, we had a, the dormitory, and the, the first floor dormitory room in the dorms were called the fishbowl. Because it was all this all glass. They had curtains, of course, but... This one room is just all glass, and it was on the first floor, so right by the door, and so people walked by. And so whoever, you know, drew the lot to live in that room, we, we you know, affectionately called it living in the fishbowl because everybody was watching. Everybody could see into your room. And so sort of as Christians, especially in this day and age, it's like living in a fishbowl, isn't it? People want to, they want to find a reason to accuse Jesus, and they're going to do it from accusing you. And it's, in some ways, we've got to be smart and, and realize that that's the case, that we are the representatives of Christ. We are his body. We have a responsibility to be his ambassadors, to do the things that he's called us to do. Are we perfect? No. And that's the problem. That's the issue. Is because sometimes it's just in our imperfections that they'll find a place to accuse us. Or sometimes in a way that they just disagree with something that Jesus said or does. But we're no different than Jesus, right? If we're called to be his followers, we can expect that if they followed him, waiting to accuse him and to catch him in some wrongdoing according to what they thought was right and wrong, then we ought to expect the same, right? So don't let that bog you down. Jesus sure didn't, right? That's what I love about Christ is he doesn't let that bother him. He doesn't let that weigh him down. They're scrutinizing. They should have been watching him to learn from him. They should have been watching him to worship him. But instead... They're trying to accuse him. And there's a few things that are left out here, uh, just that are, that are included in other Gospels. Look at verse 3. He said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill it? Or, or excuse me, or to kill. 
Now, in, I think it's in um, Matthew's gospel, he makes a note that actually the Pharisees had asked Jesus that question. Hey, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they asked him that question so they could trap him and accuse him. And Mark doesn't record that uh, in his gospel. And then Matthew also records a, uh, a little story that Jesus tells about a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath day. He says, look, you guys, he gets them right where they understand. He says, you guys, you know how it is. You've got a sheep. You've got a flock of sheep. And, and one of them falls into a pit or a deep hole on the Sabbath. And you get it out, even though it's the Sabbath and we're not supposed to work. You see, healing, this is why healing was an issue. Healing is work. And aren't we glad that people that are in the healing business work on Saturdays and Sundays and weekends? Sometimes they can't be at church here because they're at the hospital and whatnot. But they, uh, so healing, you couldn't, you couldn't apply. If someone had an injury, you could only do so much uh, medication or treatment so that it wouldn't get worse. You couldn't actually make it better on the Sabbath because that would be work. That would be healing. And you couldn't do that. So you could only do enough to make sure that, that if it was, a, and only if it was life-threatening. You see, this guy has a withered hand. His life is not in danger. So only what you could do on the Sabbath was something that would, 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 not let, would keep someone from dying, but not make them any better. That was their rules on the Sabbath. And so Jesus gives the example about a sheep that falls into a pit. Because you know, if you leave him there, he's going to die. So you get him out, right? And he says to the guys, look, isn't this man, isn't a human life more valuable than a sheep? And Luke tells a story. Uh, again, the Sabbath continues to be a conflict. Luke tells a story of a woman on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And you remember her story. She's bent over. She's kyphotic or has some type of uh, infirmity in her back that has kept her bent over for how long, folks? 18 years. 18 years. And, and Jesus talks about her being bound by Satan for 18 years. And in the synagogue, he, he heals her. And she stands upright and she begins to glorify God. And they're mad. They're upset. And he says, look, Again, he goes back to what they're familiar with. One of the things that you could do on the Sabbath was if you had animals, if you had agricultural animals, your, 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 your farming animals, and you kept them tied up on the Sabbath, you could untie them and take them out for a drink of water and then bring them back. You could take them out. It was, it was lawful to feed and water your animals on the Sabbath. And so he says to them, after the, they say, hey, there's six days to get healed, right? Hey, use one of those other days to get healed, not on the Sabbath. That's what they say. And Jesus says, well, don't you, don't you untie, don't you unbind your ox or your donkey on the Sabbath to do it good? Then why would it be wrong for me to, to free or to release this woman who's been bound? I wish I could argue like Jesus. Don't you? I mean, he is just brilliant. I wish I knew, his, I wish I knew the word of God. I mean, he, was the, he is the word of God. And there's a lot... So, I'm always so careful, you know, and I hope that with us as a church, I think one of the beauties about grace is we recognize that sometimes we don't always see things right. And what that's done is I see Jesus, he knows exactly what the Sabbath's about. He knows exactly what's right and what's wrong to do. Sometimes things are gray for us, aren't they? And it makes me very cautious and it makes me very humble when I come to counseling, when I come to teaching because, Lord, I want to know that I've got your heart in this. 
I want to know that I'm thinking clearly about this. So I'll have a thought. I, I know where I've come to today on this, but I continue to revisit things in my life. I continue to revisit issues that I, that I stand on. Say, Lord, is this, am I missing your heart in this? Because some of you have, years ago, you thought one thing, and then you've learned some things over the years, and now you think something different. Now, when, we're, when our thoughts and our ideas are based on the Word of God, we're solid in those. But we have to make sure they're based on the Word of God and not man's tradition. So this issue of healing, um, Jesus is, is addressing it. And the, the issue with this guy was he's got a withered hand. He doesn't have a life-threatening injury. And he says to this man, this would make some of you crawl up and curl up and die if this happened to you. He said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. I mean, do you know what it's like to say at the end of a church service? Now, if anybody here has an issue and they, they, want, they want to be saved, you know, they want to, want to, then just come on down. It's like, no, no, no. I want to be saved, but I ain't coming down. People will see me. Now, imagine if I, if I, imagine if I made it more specific. You know, if anybody here has committed adultery, you know, come on down to the front. You know. Nuh-uh. Because there's a lot of people that come here and they want to hide. And this guy at the synagogue, you know, obviously... He's, he's sort of hiding in the midst of the crowd that's there. I wonder how self-conscious he was about his hand. I wonder how well-known he was. Uh, we don't know where he was, where the synagogue is. Likely it was Capernaum. But is this something that he sort of hid? You know, is this something he sort of didn't want people to really... I, I know some people that have been born with deformities of the hand, and you know they're very self-conscious about it. You know, they sort of, some people are. Some people have come to terms with it, and they're not. But other people are very conscious about it. So this guy is sort of, you know hanging out, trying to blend in. Maybe no one will notice uh, that I'm here. Maybe I can just come and, and then leave early and, and, and not have to say much. And Jesus points him out. Sometimes people don't go to Bible study because they're afraid the pastor is going to point them out. You know, say, hey, you, answer this question. Or you, read this scripture. Uh-uh. This is like some people's worst nightmare. <laughs> it says, step forward. And then, so the guy comes in the middle. Now every eye is on him. And then he, he uses him as an object lesson. He says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And, and they kept silent. They couldn't answer him. His question was so per- perfectly placed and perfectly put that they had no answer for it because they knew it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Because they knew, and Jesus had talked to them about the sheep and and they knew about the donkey. They said they knew that it was right. But they just wanted to catch Jesus. So they couldn't answer. And I wonder if Jesus, already knowing their hearts, because he says to them, because to do good or to withhold doing good is actually evil, isn't it? If you know, James said, if you know to do good and do it not, what is it? It's sin. Even on the Sabbath. If you know to do good and you don't do it, that's sin. And so they knew that to do good was right to do because they worshiped God on the Sabbath. And the, pa- the priests would work on the Sabbath because those were good things. The Sabbath was for worshiping the Lord, for doing the things that you didn't do the other six days. To have that time, six days a week, we're grinding it out at work. We're grinding it out at home. And that one day, God says, one out of seven, I want you to just spend that day and think about me because it's good for you. It's for your healing. It's for your help. It's good. It's, and it's lawful to do good. And, and to save life or to kill, if you don't save a life, if you have a life in front of you and, and it's, in, it's in danger and you don't do what you can to save it, you've effectively just done what? You've killed. 
To withhold saving a life is to kill. To withhold doing good is actually evil. And so these things sort of balance out here. And I wonder if he's already got in his mind what's, what their approach is going to be come the end of this passage. They're going to be plotting to kill him on this day. Isn't it funny how hypocrisy can come when, when you get into legalism and religious uh, things? How you can, you can point out all the faults with other people, but then be guilty of the same thing yourself or, the, or, or something worse. So we ask them the question, is it, good, is it lawful and Sabbath to do good, do evil, to save life or to kill? They kept silent. That was probably the smartest thing they'd done all day. When you don't know what to say, just keep it shut. That's good advice from your pastor. And when he had looked around at them with anger, and that was a temporary anger. He's, he surveys them. He looks at the group. He's angry. You know, we picked this picture of Jesus just with the little lamb on his shoulders, and he's, malnour- he's a malnourished surfing hippie from California. Right? That's the picture we have of him with the blue eyes. And We never picture Jesus angry. Of course, we know him. We know him making the whip to drive out the money changers. And we understand that, that have his, his feelings about those things. But we, we, sometimes when you get angry, you, you feel condemned because you got angry. I think there's a time when, when I think the condemnation of the church is where we, we have felt like we should never be angry. We should be angry. The, the, the right way to be angry, is Jesus angry because they've made him feel bad about himself? Is he ma- angry because they've hurt him or because they don't like him or because they're not accepting him? Is that why he's angry? Why does it say he's angry? Because of the, he's grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Because their religion has become more important to them to, than people. Because they become so calloused. We'll get there in a minute. Going back, Jesus is, it's proper to be angry about things that you ought to be angry about in the world, like moral injustice. Now, the Bible says, be angry, Paul said. It says, be angry. That's a command. Be angry, but don't what? But don't say, oh, if God would use the anger of his people to drive them not to sin, but to do right. We sit and we watch the TV. And we see the stories and we know the the hardships around the world. And we see, boy, that really burns me up when that happens. And then we don't do anything about it. I wish, I pray that, that there is a righteous anger in us that leads us to actually get up out of our seats and go do something right for those people who are being hurt or for the people that are being, being uh, unjustly treated. To be a voice for those that don't have a voice. Anger can be really productive. But most of our anger is self-centered directed, isn't it? Most of our anger is because someone hurt me or they made me feel bad or they didn't say hi to me or they criticized me. And that's not the kind of anger that Jesus is expressing here. And he looks around at them with anger. And, and he was grieved by the hardness. Notice that word, hardness of their hearts. The heart is the seat and the center of emotion and the will and their hearts had become calloused, literally insensitive. You know how it is when you get rubbed in a certain spot on your hand. You do some work. You pick up a rake. You, you spend all day out in the yard. And, and you've rubbed a certain spot continuously. It, it, it becomes, first it becomes a blister. And it's very sensitive. But, but then, then that becomes a callus over time. After it's rubbed the wrong way over time, it becomes a callus. And calluses are, are not sensitive. They're dead skin. They're thick. They're thickened and insensate 
skin. Now, what about when that happens to a heart? That's a pretty dangerous situation, isn't it? When the heart gets hardened. And I see it all the time. And you see it all the time. For them, their hearts had been hardened by their religion. Their hearts had been hardened by their, their laws and their rules. And they become so focused on outwardly doing what's right and appearing to be doing what's right that they had lost all sensitivity to the hurt and the condition of people. John would say that uh, how can you see your brother in need and shut up your heart from him? How do we see things and, and go, well, who cares? It's a, this is, it's a tough place to be. It's a serious place to be when your heart has been hardened. It has become insensitive. It has become literally hardened or calloused. You know anybody with a hard heart? The Pharaoh, we talk about in the Old Testament, Exodus, Pharaoh had a hardened heart. Uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. God just confirmed the place he already was. I know people that have hearts have been hardened from religion. They've been to church. They've seen the abuses. And they say, That's, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I've met pe- people. Some of you have introduced me to friends that have have become really hard against Jesus, against church. And, and usually my first question is, so which in your family was a pastor, your father or your grandfather? Because people are hardened by the abuses that they see, that by the hypocrisy that they see. But, uh, and then people are hardened by other things as well. Um, and this is what greed, this is what angered Jesus. You know, you want to know what makes Jesus mad? You want to know what makes Jesus angry? Well, you have it right here. When he sees that his people or the people that represent him or the people that should know better. We don't see Jesus angry at the woman at the well. We don't see Jesus angry at the woman caught in adultery. You would think Jesus should be angry about that. That's not where we see him angry. That's where we see him compassionate. That's where we see him gracious. Where do we see him angry? with the folks that ought to know better that had quit being sensitive to people's need and more sensitive about, you know, what color was the carpet in the church or were things in the right order or what's going to happen if, if, if things get messy or the, the building gets abused or, you know, we got to be sensitive, folks. Listen, there's, there is a time already started where the love of many will grow cold. And if the church, if we as people... Don't continue to lose our lives. Take up our cross daily and follow him. I I don't know what what hope there will be. The love of many will grow cold. I pray the love of the church doesn't grow cold. I pray our sensitivity to people's need. Because there's a lot of people that are hurting. There's a lot of people with withered hands, aren't there? Withered hands and withered hearts and withered egos. Which is a good thing. Your ego needs to be withered a little bit withered personalities, withered hope. I mean, they're just dried up and shriveled up and have no idea where to go. And that was this guy, withered hand, and he's in the midst of them. Jesus calls him forward, step out here in the middle, and he looks around at them, grieved at the hardness of their hearts, going, how did they get here? How did this happen? And he said to the man, stretch out your hand, that withered dried up hand. What, how did the guy feel? I mean, I've been trying to hide this thing every day. And now he says, stretch it out. And the guy stretches out his hand. And his hand was restored 
as whole as the other. When did that happen? Did it happen before he stretched it? Did it happen as he was stretching it? You know, as, the, as Jesus said, stretch out your hand. Is it, was it like coming together as he brought it out? It's like, oh, you know, like I can, I can move it. You know, like it works and things begin to churn in his mind. And he is just, uh, no doubt you can imagine how he feels. His hand is just as whole as the other one, like it was brand new. And Jesus does that. He makes stuff brand new. Now, what would be the proper response of the Pharisees in this? The Pharisee and, and other, you would think that they'd be happy. You would think that, I don't care what day it is, this guy's life has been restored to him. His work, his future earning capacity, his, you know, all these things have been restored just at this moment. And you would think that they would be happy. But again, highlighting the hardness of their hearts, what's their response? The Pharisees went out and immediately, now it's the Sabbath, immediately plotted with the Herodians. All you have to know about the Herodians is they're sort of a politically minded group who typically were at odds with the Pharisees. These two groups, the Herodians and the Pharisees, uh, usually were at odds with one another. But isn't it interesting that they find uh, an ability to cooperate when it comes to destroying Jesus? Isn't it funny that people that will cooperate in in terms of destroying Jesus? And this is what they did. they, They began to plot how they might destroy him on the Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? They just left the synagogue going, all right, we've just been worshiping God. And it's like, did anything, did anything hit home with you today at church? You know, did anything sink in? Because we, we've seen that too, right? I mean, we, we come here and we worship, we sing, you are more than, you know, we're more than conquerors, you're victorious. And we talk about, you know, these things in church. And then we go out, we leave the doors, and that's if, as if like nothing sank in. It's as if we, you know, what, what were we doing here? Were we ever thinking about what Jesus tells about the four soils, doesn't he? And there's that hard soil that that word sits on and it can't penetrate because the soil of the heart is hard. But then there's that soft soil, that one of the four that Jesus was casting seed on, one of the four was, was able to receive that word and then it bore fruit. And that's so awesome to see. But not these guys. Their ground to their heart was so hard. So, um, what do we take away from this? You know, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You know, again, we, we're not, we, we recognize that our rest is in, in Christ. Uh, Jesus is our Sabbath. And, and you know, he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. He didn't say, go to the Outer Banks, although I don't disagree with that being a good idea. But so many people are looking for rest in recreation. Recreation. Recreation is to recreate. I need to be recreated. Right? That's what recreate means. I'm going to, and we spend, go oh, on vacation. That's, that's where I got I to gotta go. I need vacation. And again, I'm not saying vacation is a bad thing. But the problem is you come home from vacation. And then you need another one to recover from the vacation that you just took. Amen to that, right? Vacation ain't always restful. And everybody is desperate to find rest. And the rest isn't in a place. The rest isn't in a different circumstance. The rest of of the Sabbath rest is in a person. The Sabbath rest is in Jesus Christ. Whether I'm in the Outer Banks or in Fluvanna County. Whether I'm on vacation or whether I'm working. My rest, my rest is in the person 
of Jesus Christ, my relationship with Him, my underst- the understanding He gives me, uh, the freedom, the grace, the liberty that I have in Him, the truth I know from Him, uh, the time I spend with Him, that's when I want to retreat, when I need to be recreated, uh, there's nothing like a good bike ride and time with Jesus Christ. Just to think, to, to, to be thinking, Lord, help me understand what I'm going through. Help me understand what I need. Help me understand. Open my eyes, Lord, to see wondrous things from your word. And then when I get into his word and I see what he says and I understand what he, what he means, I go, ah, Lord, yes. So much of the, the pressure and the stress in my life has been self-created. Has been because I'm trying to control, control things I can't control. Because I'm trying to do things I shouldn't be doing. Because I'm trying to take responsibility for things that really don't matter. Come to me, he says, if you're heavy laden and you're carrying a heavy burden, and I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You'll find rest for your souls. Amen? Amen. Let's just do that today. Let's end a little bit early. Let's not press it to the end of the, of the time. Let's invite Nick back up here. Uh, next week, we'll pick back up in Mark chapter 3. Let's stand. And as the lights go down, if anybody has a withered hand... I want to invite you to come forward. If anybody has anything else they're really embarrassed about and don't want anybody to know, I want to invite you to come forward so that Jesus Christ can make an example of you, of his healing power. And, and I say this in all truth. I do. I'll, I'll be sitting down here as I usually do. I plop myself down on the steps over here. Some of the folks that are the intercessors will be in the prayer room over here. Uh, so I do want to invite you. Never in, the, never in the life of the world, I think, my opinion, has there been a time so desperate as this. Uh, so desperate as the day we live. There is violence and conflict all over the globe. All over the globe. And never will there be peace until Jesus Christ returns. Amen. And never will there be peace in your life. Uh, no matter how many trips to the Outer Banks, those won't bring peace. Never will there be peace in your life. Fathers, mothers, young folks. Until you find that peace in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.